Welcome to the Naturally Nourished Podcast that delivers cutting-edge food as medicine solutions for optimal health. Allie Miller is a nutrition expert sought up by the media and America's top medical institutes for her revolutionary functional medicine interventions. From disease treatment to prevention, every episode will empower you with ways to put yourself back in control of your health. Please note, the topics discussed are for educational purposes only. Now welcome, Integrative Dietitians Allie Miller and her co-host Becky Yu. Welcome to episode 331 of the Naturally Nourished Podcast. In today's episode, we'll be digging deep into a biomarker that you've probably heard us reference before, but maybe you don't really know what it means, homocysteine. So today we'll be talking about what it is, why it matters. This is essentially a marker that can tell us if there is vascular inflammation or rigidity in the vessels, and spoiler alert, this can lead to elevated blood pressure, and all kinds of other health manifestations. Today, we're going to cover what exactly homocysteine is, what it can tell you about your health status, how it can drive disease, and what to do if it is elevated. And then we'll also talk some on the connection with blood pressure and other cardiovascular concerns and how we can work to lower homocysteine to drive whole body health. Yes. So we started to talk a little bit last episode about the role of methylation and the role of B vitamins, which also, spoiler alert, we're going to be nerding out on in today's episode with just a different approach. And as we share with you in February, this is the time of year often when we think of heart health. And so we have some content coming out over the next couple weeks, including a guest to speak on updates on heart health. So we're excited to provide you guys up to date clinical research as well as functional medicine interventions to ensure that you feel confident about cardiovascular health and that you can support all of your household members and maybe even some extended family members to best navigate risk factor as well as to optimize and thrive because that's always the beauty not just preventing disease but actually experiencing wellness which is absolutely equally important yes absolutely Um, Before we get into all that, let's just have some updates. Yeah. So speaking of wellness, we are super excited to share an in-person event that we have coming up in May in Wimberley out in Hill Country here outside of Austin, about an hour uh, southwest of Austin, Texas. And uh, this is going to be Wellness in Wimberley. It is going to be held on May 20th and 21st. And this is an event that is going to be a two-day event. So we're not hosting it as a retreat as we did last year. You're going to have the ability to lodge in independently. You can also choose to drive up for day one or day two, but we have a feeling that the two-day passes are going to probably sell out. Um, It's going to be $375 per person, and this includes lunch on each days, and uh, that would be a $75 savings to get the joint two-day pass. So $375 for two days, and these are days that go from 11 a.m. to 2 p.m. as far as structured events. So on Saturday, I will be lecturing on functional medicine and then Becky and I are going to be doing a Q&A open live uh, interactive format ask us anything uh, so the lecture will be from 11 a.m. until 1230 we're going to be catering you lunch from all of my food is medicine recipes made by the naturally nourished market and then Becky and I will do kind of an interactive panel to close out that day that will also have you over optionally to host a healthy hour over at my market where you can pick up goods for dinner, bring them back to your Airbnb. You can get uh, local Texas wines at half off and just kind of engage with the naturally nourished family. And then on Sunday, we have from 11 to 2 o'clock a interactive cooking class. Uh, and then that'll follow up with an exclusive VIP shopping opportunity at the Naturally Nourished Market. So we can't wait to see you out here in Wimberley, Texas. Structured events would be from 11 to 2 with those ability to extend up to 4 p.m. on each of those days. And then that allows you time to make your own fun dinner reservations, maybe do some early morning shopping and explore our little lovely gem of the hill country. So can't wait to see you out here. Uh, there will be 50 spots 
They will sell fast, and we will have a link in today's episode note for you to register. Yes, and we'll also have, I'm sure as we get closer to the date, like a little guide put together for you guys of like favorite restaurants in the area, um, suggested places to stay so you can kind of curate your own little hill country getaway. There's a topia out here, so you can stay a couple nights in a yurt out looking under the amazing starlight that we have out here especially depending on the moon cycle that we're at um and yeah we'll put a bunch of different fun lodging as well as natural active things like zip lining in the hills horseback riding and so many other things yes. so i think it'd be a great retreat that you can kind of build on your own this would be something that is not exclusive to women so you could bring your husband boyfriend um you know you could bring a family member coworker, you name it foodie friend uh we'd love to meet y'all uh, and this is going to be may 20th and 21st wellness in wimberley All right, before we get into today's episode, let's just have a quick word from our sponsor for this episode, Wild Foods. Yes, so Wild Foods is a food company that believes like we do that real food can be medicine. And if we're talking about real food, that starts with the importance of the sourcing. So they have everything from coffee to turmeric to medicinal mushrooms, and all of their products are painstakingly sourced direct from wild foods from small farms around the globe. So they also believe in the importance of decentralizing food production to ensure nutrient-dense qualitative foods to be accessible for our foodicinal pantry or pharmacy, if you will. Um, And their products that I use regularly are their matcha. Um, I also am a big fan of their teas. They have a variety of different teas. I love the coconut chai, which uses red rooibos and has um, crushed chili and safflower in there um, or saffron. I also am a big fan of their Cocotropics, which is an adaptogenic blend with raw cacao powder and maca, as well as reishi and chaga mushrooms. And this is one that will be anti-inflammatory with the addition of wild uh, harvested turmeric in there. So you have the anti-inflammatory antioxidants of the raw cacao. We have the nootropic brain-focusing effect of those medicinal mushroom extracts. And it sips like a beautiful hot cocoa. Or you can blend it into your keto coffee to make a fat-fueled brain-boosting beverage. Whoa, check that out. Um, So go on over to wildfoods.co, that's .co, check out all of these various pantry staples. So this could be teas, it could be your matcha powder, it could be wild collagen. We also could be looking at their hand-harvested vanilla bean, which I use now in all of my baking and smoothies. Um, Check out all of what they have to offer, real food, real ingredients, at wildfoods.co, that's .co. Uh, Use the code AllieMillerRD at checkout, and you will get 12% off of your order. All right, let's do it. So kicking things off, what exactly is homocysteine? Okay, so homocysteine is an amino acid that naturally occurs in the body and also can be consumed. It's created during metabolic processes and um, homocysteine is produced as a byproduct of methylation. It, um, When we talk about methylation, this is the process of producing a compound called methionine. So I remember back in the day of biochem, we would say from SAM to SA, which is S-adenosylmethionine, to S-adenosyl homocysteine. And this is a bilateral pathway that can be recycled back and forth from homocysteine into methionine. Methionine is thought of as more of a benign amino acid, and this can actually further than be metabolized into cysteine, which cysteine might be familiar to y'all if you're thinking of the concept of NAC or N-acetylcysteine, a powerhouse antioxidant. So cysteine is also a known building block to make glutathione. So going back to probably our last most nerdy episode, (laughs) um, that's where we're looking at that substrate or that building block. So in an ideal setting, we have adequate status of B vitamins, and this will ensure that homocysteine levels do not build up in the body and that instead of having excessive homocysteine, that it is metabolized into methionine, which is then optimally further metabolized into cysteine to boost up your antioxidant status. If homocysteine levels are not metabolized and they build up in the body, they can actually act like a toxin. They can drive pro-inflammatory effects or increase inflammation in the body and have been known to drive heart disease, including vascular rigidity. And also we see a trend with autoimmune disease, and that's part of this connection of 
often seeing that this person has issues with methylation if we see that accumulation of homocysteine. Sure. Um, so it's that buildup that we're looking at. And so that buildup or too much homocysteine in the blood has been associated with increased risk of cardiovascular disease, including venous thrombosis or blood clots, atherosclerosis, high blood pressure, coronary heart disease, stroke, and the list goes on. Absolutely. Um, so it's naturally occurring. It's not going to be dangerous or unhealthy until it really starts to accumulate at high levels. Let's talk about how this happens in the first place. You mentioned B vitamins as a, a driving factor. Yeah. And so, you know, again, when I was starting to learn biochemistry and we were looking at that process of conversion from the SAM to SA or that S adenosyl methionine to S adenosyl homocysteine, that concept of methylation is this process of, as we've discussed before, building or excreting. And when we look at low presence of methyl donors or individuals that have methylation genetic SNPs, this is going to be the first level of concern. So methyl donors, we would look at for sure, the first thing we would explore would be insufficient levels of folate. And when we talked about uh, in last episode about mental health and depression, we started connect to connect that MTHFR or methylene tetrahydrofolate reductase, that MTHFR gene being a potential risk factor for clinically low folate levels. Um, so not having sufficient levels of folate either based on that genetic risk factor or based on insufficient supplementation or dietary consumption. We can also see individuals that have other low B vitamins playing a role with methylation or reducing homocysteine buildup. So this would be B6, B12, betaine, as well as B2, and magnesium as big driving forces to support that regulation or prevent the accumulation. Okay, so an insufficiency of these methyl donors, I think, is a big reason that we see for sure. Um, and we'll get into, I'm sure, you know, more reasons for deficiency in a little bit. Um, and then we can also see certain drugs depleting Definitely. those nutrients or just driving homocysteine high. Yes. So definitely the most known and acknowledged is methotrexate, which is a drug that's often used for rheumatoid arthritis Mm -hmm. or sometimes other autoimmune inflammatory conditions. And methotrexate will actually block that process. And so often people will cycle in folate or sometimes unfortunately folic acid once a week when taking methotrexate drugs because that is a known clinical deficiency which can be quite severe. Sure. But we also know, you know, other medications like levodopa, metformin, which is a very common diabetic drug. We know individuals that are taking um, col cholesteramine, um, which is a bile acid sequesterant, would also have a role here. Nitrous oxide can drive homocysteine levels up. Um, and I think that Ben Lynch talks about that, especially like in the birthing process of sure, yeah, why yeah. you shouldn't do laughing gas, which yep. is nitrous oxide yep. in the birth process, because that can drive dangerous homocysteine levels for baby and, and have a pro-oxidant effect. Sure. Or even like dental care in that world sure. of things, I'm thinking. Mm-hmm. Yep. And so you'd really want to think about not just detoxing following these medications, but definitely supporting that methylation process. And then something I think that's equally important to call out is a high methionine diet. So again, homocysteine itself is a metabolite that's created in the body. But when we look at this concept of eating too much ground meat or too much muscle, this can drive an imbalance of methionine to glycine. And we've seen that this type of amino acid imbalance can drive up homocysteine because again, methionine can be converted into homocysteine. And so glycine is where we would see more of the snout to tail philosophy come to life where we're actually seeing more skin and bone consumption. So consuming bone broth would be a really great way to offset a high methionine diet or getting like short ribs with bone in skin on as opposed to again just ground burger patty muscle protein Um, so eating that whole animal is a really important thing and individuals that eat more of a standard american high protein diet probably are going to be at a high methionine yep Okay. And then um, other risk factors, smoking, and that's a risk factor for just about everything these days. Um, High caffeine or coffee consumption in particular, alcohol consumption. Um, Homocysteine does just naturally increase with age. And probably, you know, some of that is due to some of these deficiencies we've talked about um, Mm -hmm. increasing with age. Obesity. um, And then um, MTHFR is a big driver as well. and, And that's a genetic mutation. 
Yes. So again, just to kind of go a little deeper on that, I threw out the whole, you know, methylene tetrahydrofolate reductase, (laughs) what that MTHFR stands for. And basically, again, it's a gene mutation that can influence the way that individuals methylate. Um, And this will impact how they metabolize and convert nutrients from their diet into bioactive vitamins, minerals, and proteins. So we think of this concept of methylation as building, but also as excreting or reducing build up in the body. So excreting would be this regulating of homocysteine. Building would be the production of methylfolate, for instance, right? Um, And then that down the line can play a role with neurological conditions, the formation of neurotransmitters. And that's why we connected it in last episode to mental health when we were talking about depression, anxiety, schizophrenia, schizophrenia and mania, for example. Um, MTHFR gene is believed to influence about 30 to 50 percent of all people. And it depends on what type of MTHFR mutation we have to influence the severity of it. Um, And so we know that there are various forms of the MTHFR mutation, the C677T um, and the A128, uh, 1298, I believe it is. This is off the top of my head, not in my notes. Um, But the C677T is the most dominant form, which impacts about 60% of our methylation. So if an individual is heterozygous on that C677T, they're going to have only, heterozygous means one gene is mutated. And so that would mean mom or dad gave them a quote unquote dirty gene on that methylation pathway. So if that influences 60% of your methylation and one of your genes is mutated, you're only methylating at about 70% function because 30% of that opportunity has been impacted by that genetic mutation. Now, if you have a homozygous gene mutation on that pathway, that would mean both mom and dad, homo meaning same, right? Both mom and dad actually have given you a dirty gene. And if they impacted that C677T, then that individual is really only methylating at about 30 to 40% functionality. And that's the population that we are most Uh, concerned about. I talked about this in detail and we can link the episode. It was back in the 200s when we talked about genetic SNPs and I believe it was called not medical freedom, but something where we were connecting the idea about considering vaccination strategy. And I actually unpacked my daughter's genetic Mm -hmm. panel and talked through the process of, you know, her Achilles heels, if you will. And that's what we look at genetics as an opportunity for dysfunction. Sure. And then we have that empowering information and then we can regulate by providing those donor nutrients that someone with MTHFR has a higher need for. Sure. Okay, so do you have to know your genetics here or are there like symptoms that homocysteine is getting too high or do you have to specifically test for homocysteine? So it's absolutely cheaper to test for homocysteine than genetic testing. (laughs) And, you know, I always like to assess for homocysteine because this is the impact of, right? So we think of genetic testing as an opportunity, or I just mentioned this concept of Achilles heel, right? A potential soft spot, if you will, right? But when we actually look at elevations in homocysteine, regardless of MTHFR, this person needs methylation support, right? And so a high homocysteine could be giving you data that that person has an MTHFR SNP or that they're living a highly toxic lifestyle or that they're in a diet deficient of these methylating B vitamins. Sure. Yep. So kind of various indications. And it's a relatively inexpensive lab. I've for sure in the past have gotten just a GP to um, Mm -hmm. run it, you know, when I'm getting other blood work done. So that's something you can just ask for in the blood. Um, We also include it in our um, cardiometabolic panel because it is a really telling marker. Yes, absolutely. So we'll be sure to link that as a lab. And that's one that also would then screen for inflammatory imbalance in the body as well as lipoprotein particle. Really, especially again with this concept of heart health, February, it'd be a good investment to see where you're at. Um, So as far as like symptoms of elevated homocysteine levels, um, what we do tend to look for is a higher risk for heart problems. So especially anyone that has coronary artery disease, has experienced a heart attack, attack or stroke or has hypertension or elevated blood pressure, these are populations of individuals that should absolutely have their homocysteine levels screened. And we're looking for a value of eight or less as an ideal range. And I'll tell you, I've seen people at values of 26. I believe that the standard reference range is 
13. Is that right? Um, and so, yeah. you know, that kind of functional so. medicine range is to keep it at eight or below. Um, but when we see these levels elevated, the number one intervention is to support that methylation process. So we tend to see individuals that have cardiovascular disease to also have this elevated homocysteine, and it's often underappreciated by the mainstream medical world and can have such an influence on their cardiometabolic health. So totally. really important kind of call to action there especially for a household member that has a comorbidity. And then we see this impact on neurological disease. So anyone that has Alzheimer's, dementia, cognitive problems, these would be people to explore and look into that homocysteine value. And then we do see some structural influences. So in children, if we're seeing skeletal or neurologically developmental abnormalities, um, this would be something to consider. And skeletal will often see with severe homocysteine elevation, a protruding chest or rib cage or curved spine. We can even see elongated limbs and extremities or like spider-like toes and fingers. And then this would be another area in the neurological space to explore for behavioral issues, ADHD, autism, learning disabilities, uh, migraines and headaches would absolutely be an area of exploration. And then, as I mentioned earlier, mental disease. So whether depression, anxiety, bipolar, any mental health problem, we should absolutely be exploring homocysteine status and how we can get that into an optimal range. Okay. So not symptoms per se, but maybe some health conditions where we want to go backward and, and kind of look at this influencing. Yeah. Factor. I mean, I'd break it down to basically, and we didn't mention fertility, sure, but yeah, a big yeah. one to, to watch for is miscarriage. Yep. Um, miscarriage and fertility issues uh, can be of a big area where often screening for homocysteine and supporting methylation can be very resolutionary um, or supportive of then healthy full-term pregnancy. Um, so I think of the world of fertility. I think of the world of neurological health, and I think of inflammation and cardiovascular as the kind of buckets to explore. Sure. Um, and then you mentioned ideal kind of optimal level less than eight. Um, most of the research is indicating like less than 10. You're probably okay as far as, you know, the, the cardiovascular risk portion. And then that reference range actually goes up to 14.5. Okay. So it could be dynamically, you know, out of our functional range and still be considered normal where it wouldn't be a red flag necessarily. And some unknowing practitioners might, you know, allow you into the 1530 plus uh, but we do definitely see that intermediary elevated levels can be influential. And then we can even see exceeding levels of like 100 okay. uh, where we'd be seriously elevated. Yep. Okay. So again, more cost effective just to, you know, test that homocysteine. But if there's some significant familial history or, you know, something else going on that we're looking to dive into, you could go ahead and run a full, you know, 55 SNP panel like the one that we offer um, on our website. And that does include all of the MTHFR testing that you mentioned. Yes. Yeah, so you'd get all of the variants and then you would get, of course, beyond methylation, your uh, glutathione enzyme pathways, you would get indicators of detoxification, uh, COMT, which is another variant that we would look at for mood areas of concern or estrogen metabolism. If we have a family history of breast cancer, for instance. So you can run the 55 SNP panel to learn about your genetics, but regardless, again, you still would want to run your serum homocysteine level to understand how successful your current methylation protocol is, or if you have to crank it up a notch, and maybe then that's where you would need to layer in, I'm sure we'll talk about soon, but our Methyl Complete, um, which is the newer formula in our line, which has all of those methyl donating components. Yes. So before we jump the gun and, and start talking about nutrients and you know other ways that we can lower this, let's go ahead and just discuss a little more on how elevated homocysteine can contribute to disease risk. So I think the first thing you mentioned there was cardiovascular risk. Absolutely. So I've, I've mentioned that it can drive arterial or vascular rigidity. And that's the main connection to coronary artery disease is that homocysteine levels will drive the hardening of arteries. And if your arteries are hard and rigid, they are more prone towards dysfunction overall. So we've actually seen that homocysteine can be a better indicator of heart disease than other well-known risk factors, even including when isolated and looking at smoking or blood pressure, homocysteine is a stronger indicator of true heart disease risk. We know also that 
in itself beyond driving vascular rigidity and that hardening of arteries that it can be toxic in the brain. Um, It can actually be toxic to our neurons and other cells. And this is where we attribute it to driving Alzheimer's disease, cognitive decline, and then even more large-scale neurological diseases such as Parkinson's and multiple sclerosis. Um, We can see this neurological autoimmune spectrum of diseases tend to have methylation issues and thus elevated homocysteine levels. And when homocysteine levels rise, again, they are toxic to our neurons, but they also can actually destroy the blood-brain barrier. Uh, So they penetrate that blood-brain barrier and can actually drive more of a quote-unquote leaky brain syndrome. So just similar to leaky gut, where then larger compounds that are inflammatory get into that barrier in the brain space, we'll actually then see more inflammatory escape or more inflammatory compounds falling into or or passing through that blood-brain barrier. And this can have a dynamic impact. In fact, we've seen homocysteine levels at 14 or higher, which is just at that moderately elevated um, risk factor, actually increases Alzheimer's disease risk by two parts. So doubles the risk of Alzheimer's disease from a value that's just what would be called moderately or mildly, not even moderate, mildly elevated. I mean, it wouldn't even be flagged. Like if you just went to Quest Lab and Mm -hmm. ran this, it wouldn't even have a little H next to it for high. Right. Right. And then we've seen that, you know, in the world of depression, higher homocysteine levels actually are tied to lower serotonin. Because remember, I just made that connection about how methylation is both building and excreting. So if we're not excreting and we're getting the buildup of homocysteine, that means that that wheel is not converting to drive that folate, which then aids in production of serotonin. Um, So we can see an influence of when homocysteine is up, that's an indicator of often too low of serotonin levels. Um, And then we've also seen it playing a role with postpartum depression. Um, We've seen an influence of homocysteine levels having two-time more likelihood in men with association of struggling with depression um, and remarkably higher than those that had the lowest third level of homocysteine values. So there's quite remarkable data that makes this an important biomarker to assess regularly and manage. For sure. Um, Let's go a little bit deeper on, you know, specifically the vascular health connection and and some of those associated conditions. So why does high homocysteine matter when it comes to our vascular system? So as I mentioned, you know, there's that hardening of arteries as one of the main mechanisms. And we've seen atherosclerosis or uh, plaque buildup in the arterial tissue following an increased risk with high homocysteine. We've also seen heart attack and stroke, uh, cognitive decline and dementia, as mentioned. And we've seen in over 80 studies that even moderately elevated levels can increase the risk of cardiovascular disease. And this is because homocysteine not only has that arterial rigidity, but that it actually can have an adverse effect on blood clotting as well as an adverse effect on vasodilation. So it can inhibit vasodilation and through the rigidity of the arterial walls, it also drives thickness of them. Okay. And so for this episode, we've pulled a lot of research that I'll be sure to link over in the show notes, but let's go a little bit deeper specifically on vascular health and some of those associated conditions with some just kind of rapid stats about why homocysteine matters. Yeah. Yeah. So like I said, you know, homocysteine has that role on the arterial rigidity, um, which actually in turn can drive thickening of arterial walls, drive more risk factor for blood clots, and can interfere with vasodilation, so function on the vascular level. And we've seen that a prolonged influence on homocysteine levels, if we're able to decrease homocysteine levels by just three points, that this could lower cardiovascular disease risk by up to 25%. So huge. Again, I already mentioned that as an independent variable, it's more of a risk factor than smoking. Um, We've also seen evidence to note that homocysteine is a better indicator of cardiac risk than cholesterol. So again, really important, especially when we're thinking about what's being used as a primary intervention and these underlooked risk factors. How come every doctor runs your standard lipids and wants to give you a statin drug, but doesn't even look at homocysteine? Some might even say, I don't know what that biomarker is, which is quite concerning. Um, We've seen also in a meta-analysis that for every five 
millimole uh, increase in homocysteine, there was a 52% increased risk of death from coronary artery disease and a 32% increased cardiovascular disease risk, as well as 27% increased risk of death from any cause. Um, So it's a pretty big indicator of mortality risk factor as well. And then if we extend into stroke, we know that an elevated homocysteine level can increase the risk factor fourfold, especially in patients that had arterial fibrillation, and that this can be a common cause of stroke in those that are age 80 plus. And then finally, we looked at multiple controlled trials that indicated that homocysteine lower therapy using B12 and or folate could reduce stroke risk by at least 10% with greater effects with those that had those elevated homocysteine levels and lower baseline folate levels. So that deficiency and that excess when corrected, having a significant reduction of disease and death risk factor. Okay. Super, super wild. So like you said, really important biomarker. I think it needs to get like added to just the standard yeah. of care, right? No doubt. No doubt. Um, let's talk a little bit real quick before we move on, on a little bit deeper into Alzheimer's sure, risk. Yeah, yeah. So I mentioned that leaky brain syndrome, you know, as one of these mechanisms, but we've also seen in clinical literature that there is a true progression of brain tissue damage from those individuals that have elevated homocysteine levels. And so we see this down to the level of our neurofibrillary tangles, uh, having dysfunctional protein on our amyloid beta tau accumulation and we also see brain atrophy or actual brain shrinkage in individuals that have elevated homocysteine and one meta-analysis looked at every five millimole increase in homocysteine associated with a 15 percent increase in alzheimer's disease risk and that lowering homocysteine levels using b12 b6 and folate have been used to markedly slow brain atrophy and cognitive decline so just really again important to consider as something that would add on to a basic multi getting that methyl complete package so that we are aging gently, if you will, <laughs> reducing that oxidative stress and that harmful influence, which could drive essentially brain toxicity as well as cardiovascular risk factor. Okay. So bottom line, elevated homocysteine, not good. Right. Um, and really can be detrimental to our vascular health. But I think the good news is, is that correcting it and you know correcting it with these nutrients is going to have a myriad of positive impact. Absolutely. And we will go a little bit deeper into more advanced cardiovascular disease markers when we have our guest coming up. Um, I'll be sure to ask him about homocysteine and if he likes to run it. No doubt. I have a feeling that he does. I'm sure. Um, And we'll talk to him also in its connection on vascular calcification and um, coronary artery calcium scans, et cetera. So stay tuned for that. Okay. Um, So let's talk a little bit about um, this particular study about treatment-resistant hypertension that I pulled, um, because I think think this is an interesting one. Really important because often many many people do have treatment-resistant hypertension. So they're on then a beta blocker plus a diuretic drug, plus maybe even a third hypertensive agent. And, you know, we talk a lot about the role of GABACalm in our line, that bioidentical GABA as being a neuroinhibitory mellower out and that helping with some treatment-resistant individuals with hypertension. But I think if you haven't screened for homocysteine and you're going on any blood pressure medication, that should be the first line of defense or the first thing to explore. Uh, We've seen individuals that have elevated homocysteine, whether triggered by genetic mutations or an insufficient body store of these active B vitamins, that these individuals have oxidative stress and that this oxidative stress impairs their nitric oxide synthesis, which will cause small vessels to vasoconstrict. And that will be in that central nervous system. Um, We see also that hyper hyper homocysteine or high homocysteine levels can be an independent risk factor for hypertension. And we've seen in literature that adding in those methyl donors, so whether it's B2, riboflavin, B6, folate, and B12, that these can directly reduce blood pressure as much as 6 to 13 millimoles. um, And that this could be a really great 
therapy to reduce hypertension and stroke risk. Okay, and I want to call that out, that that 6 to 13 point reduction. This is as much of a difference as some of the blood pressure medications out there make, right? Um, So typically we're looking at one of the you know, various blood pressure medications you mentioned, lowering by about 10 points. So yeah. just addressing homocysteine could do that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No doubt. Pretty wild. Yes. And so a little bit more on blood pressure, you can check out episode 143, which we will link in the show notes. And although we don't talk a lot about homocysteine, I think it's a short visit there. And we definitely dig into blood pressure highs and lows, supplementation, food as medicine strategy. We connect the adrenal glands and so much more. So I'll link that if you're someone that that rang a bell and you want to dig deeper into exploring what's going on with your blood pressure. Yes. Okay. And we kind of gave a little sneak preview of what you do to lower homocysteine, but let's go on and, you know, talk about that because it sounds like it's important to get it in check for blood pressure, reduction of cardiovascular risk, all of the things. What do we do? Yeah. So regulating homocysteine is going to require an optimal balanced diet uh, focused on whole real foods and low in toxins or oxidative stress drivers. So we're looking at a high phytocompound antioxidant rich diet as well as one that again has a balanced approach from that kind of snout to tail or whole animal eating component. Um, Because again, we see individuals that have low intake of fruits and vegetables or low physical activity, higher body fat accumulation, these individuals are going to often be more prone to elevated homocysteine. And we also see individuals that have heavy consumption of meat and dairy products in that more standard American diet or just ground meat, um, that this can be one way to really increase that methionine burden without that glycine. So I would take more of a Mediterranean whole food, uh, could be a keto approach, especially if looking for weight loss as a way to bring down your homocysteine levels, getting a balance of monounsaturated fats from olive oil and whole olives, as well as a variety of phytocompounds, again, from bright fruits and vegetables, getting quality grass-fed pasture-raised proteins and wild-caught fish. Uh, These would be great ways to support healthy, balanced methylation. And when I think of specific influence of B vitamins and folate, I think of emphasizing as we always do two to three cups of leafy greens daily. We think of foliage as a source of folate. And I also think of liver as nature's multivitamin. So we can link our uh, recipe, it's not a recipe, (laughs) liver pills essentially, which is basically getting uh, grass-fed pasture-raised liver from your butcher cutting it into small bite size or swallowable size pieces. So about like a half inch by half inch and um, then just flash freezing it. Um, We've also done like one where we've done cute little hearts where we actually pureed it and then put in the heart molds and froze. Um, But you can just cut chunks of liver, keep that in your freezer and then just swallow it whole. If you're someone that doesn't do well with the metallic flavor profile of offal or organ consumption but this is also something to consider to start to shift your palate towards maybe being more user-friendly and that's where maybe we could link the organ meatballs video becky and i know you're really um regular consumer of the ancestral blends let's talk about for listeners how to kind of start to to get in there and then we'll talk about what to avoid in the diet yeah i think um if you're (laughs) if you're wary of liver i think finding a company that like has done the hard work for you of, you know, sourcing from pasture raised, actually grinding it and, um, incorporating it with another ground meat. So it's like, you don't have to worry about processing a liver or cutting one or finding one or yeah. <laughs> any of that. Um, force of nature is a, a fabulous brand mm-hmm. that does ancestral. Um, I think they have ancestral beef, bison, and chicken. chicken. Their chicken yeah. is fabulous. Their chicken's really good. I've been doing um, chicken nuggets with that for Noah, and he loves it, does not know there's anything going on And it has there. heart uh, and liver, and it also has a little bit of chicken skin, which yeah. is kind of yeah, yummy. Yeah, and they're using some of the dark meat, mm-hmm. too. So um, also helping to combat you know that methionine issue of just eating the muscle meat totally. right there. Um, a, a lot of local um, farms are starting to do this, so we just picked up, they call it caveman chicken um, from Bellevue Farms here in Austin. They just started doing a a blend as well. Um, So I think seeking that out is a good way to start. And then using it in a recipe that is going to get 
kind of disguised. Um, yep. So a meatball that has, you know, a very flavorful sauce and you're using a lot of like onions, garlic, fresh herb, even in the meatball itself. And then maybe doing it with a tomato basil type marinara sauce or a pesto, or maybe you're using that in, you know, a chili or a taco recipe. I think of cumin as being yeah. a really good yeah, way yeah. of hiding it. Covers it, mm-hmm. covers it up. Um, but yeah, with the, the blends, it's really not as bad. You don't need to hide it as much. Yes. So we kind we of try to do it. Diluting it yeah. for you. We try to do it like every two weeks at least awesome. of a liver blend. Um, very doable. Yes. And my household does really well with the chicken where we don't even have to hide it. And then the beef or the bison I'm able to get in, in like once a month. Yep. <laughs> and then sometimes a little bit more for myself than actually Stella doesn't discern or mind it, but it's more my husband. And so I have to do a tomato based sauce always to kind of sneak it in. But also I'm thinking of the uh, meatloaf with the bacon in it that oh, has yeah, liver in recipe. it as well yep. as a blend. So yep. that'd be a good starter recipe, a lot of flavor going on. So you're not you know, focused on that. Yes. And equally important of getting those nutrients. So again, the goal of liver is getting all of these active B vitamins in a very bioavailable form. Uh, and so when we're talking about bioavailability, we have to also consider that other end of the spectrum, you know, food as medicine is equally about the abundance as much as the restriction. And so the big thing that we hit two episodes ago when we were talking about mental health and food as medicine and removing processed refined grains was that connection of synthetic B vitamins. So just to reiterate that, this is why when we're looking at managing homocysteine levels, or we could extend it to any of the conditions, so managing Alzheimer's disease or cardiovascular disease, we would argue for a grain-free approach or absolutely a flour-free approach because any flour from wheat, whether it's whole wheat flour, white flour, even if it's organic unbleached, it's still going to have the synthetic B vitamin enrichment. And the enrichment that occurs with flour is actually in the folic acid versus that nature-made methylated folate. And when you consume flour-based foods and you have a propendency towards methylation issues, so especially those genetic factors of MTHFR, if you're eating refined flour-based foods, that folic acid will actually create more of a squeaky wheel, if you will, in your methylation potential and will elevate homocysteine buildup in the body and compete with the bioavailable folate. And so you'll actually get more methylation issues with the synthetic B vitamins. And then I'd say beyond flour-based foods, watch out for crummy supplements. I can't tell you, most physicians that are prescribing a prenatal, most of those prenatals have folic acid instead of methylated folate. And so anytime you're taking a supplement in the Naturally Nourished line, we've already vetted for you. We actually have various forms of folate to ensure that we're getting broad spectrum support. So for instance, we use folinic acid plus quadrifolate and organic spinach as a three-part contributor into our B-complex. So we're getting that methylated form. We're getting the other varied form without any of that synthetic folic. Um, And we also look at um, the L-methyl tetrahydrofolate in our multi-defense or multi-defense with iron, et cetera. Okay, so avoiding those synthetic Bs, taking the right forms of of B vitamins. Um, And then... um, limiting alcohol important here and maybe doing a 10 day detox to kind of clean, um, clean up, um, and just flood your body with good beneficial nutrients, including B vitamins. Um, also limiting caffeine. Um, so all with that detox. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So yeah, caffeine consumption has been tied. I think it was four plus cups or three to four cups, um, to be, um, insignificant under three. Okay. Right? Okay. okay. So, so fairs, feels fair. That would be an yeah. excessive coffee yeah, yeah. consumption. Okay. So if we say like that. one to two anyway for all of the yeah. other reasons. For adrenal reasons yeah. and all the things. Yeah. So don't go crazy with your coffee. Yeah. <laughs> um, but you don't have to completely quit it probably either. Yes. Okay. And then beyond diet, there are some other 
fun lifestyle elements? Well, I'll start with the maybe most considered one of wellness exercise. So we've seen that long-term strength training has been shown to lower homocysteine levels. And we always talk about the importance of strength training as we age to be more and more important. And that would also be the trajectory as your homocysteine levels are at risk of increasing. And then it's still kind of unclear on long-term aerobics. So strength training seems to be really the big impact. But we have seen, generally speaking, that those that were more physically active in general had lower lower homocysteine levels than those that were less physically active. And that was independent actually of their status of B vitamins. So there is something about moving, helping in that clearance for sure. Um, What about like sauna as a passive cardiovascular exercise? I love this, this concept of, you know, being able to sit in a sauna and get your cardiovascular workout. Yeah. Yeah. So there was actually a, a big thing I got from sunlight and sauna as I'm getting my sauna delivered next week, I'm very excited. Uh, and we had, uh, I believe, a guest on from Sunlight and Sauna a year or maybe it was two years ago. So we can link that episode where we talked about infrared sauna, the various wavelengths and how it works. But when we're talking about infrared sauna connected to heart health, we know that infrared sauna can lower toxic metals, including mercury. And toxic metals can be a big driver for increasing homocysteine status. So while we support detox in general, like you mentioned, doing the 10-day detox would also be another way of lowering toxic metals, this will be a way of reducing homocysteine and enhancing that methylation process. We've also seen beyond homocysteine as the variable for talking about sauna and heart health, that regular sessions in infrared sauna can lower blood pressure, can improve circulation, and can reduce stress on the cardiovascular system. So you're getting both that detox support as well as actually helping with vascular function and circulation. And then what's really wild is that the cardio benefits of infrared sauna are valid. Um, They've actually been shown in clinical research to be an effective form of heart exercise because you're working your cardiovascular system and yes, it's passive cardio. You're not going to maybe be building muscle mass, um, but your heart is working in the same way it would with cardiovascular exercise while you're sitting back and relaxing. Your heart is still pumping and that's that beauty of maybe getting parasympathetic, supporting stress reduction while you're still raising your heart rate and increasing circulation, thus reducing cardiovascular disease risk. Amazing. Um, and so when we're talking passive cardio, um, I'm reading from Sunlight and the um, blood flow actually during uh, infrared sauna use can rise from a normal five to seven quarts per minute up to 13 quarts per minute. So that's pretty significant. Yeah, this was published in the, st- the Journal of Complementary Therapies in Medicine. And again, pretty wild to see that kind of double down impact of cardiovascular function. And you can feel it, of course. There is that pseudo um, heart racing kind of impact mm-hmm. when you're in the sauna. And that's why we kind of work our way up to toleration with our length. Um, but really beautiful to see that this is something you could work into your wellness that would have a multitude impact on heart health. And we know from a study in 2005 by the University of of Missouri, Kansas City, that the infrared sauna use was able to lower blood pressure through a program of 30-minute infrared sauna sessions three times a week. They concluded that the sunlight and sauna specifically was used in this study and that it was uh, a role that played dilation of blood vessels and reduced the volume of the inner lining of the blood uh, vessel, which thus increased circulation for healthy blood pressure regulation. Okay. Well, you guys are going to be super heart healthy in your yes. in your sauna. I'm going to come sit on it. Yeah. In it. I think what what we'll do is we'll just podcast and then sauna right after it. I love debrief. it. Yes. <laughs> Sounds yep. good. Yep. Then so, jump in the pool. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Y'all can definitely check out Sunlight and Saunas. We'll put a link in the show notes. Um, you can save $600 on your sauna using Allie Miller RD. This could be a really cool Valentine gift. I know we're talking the day before Valentine's, but if you haven't pulled the lever, I mean, I would be pretty pumped as a baller Valentine's gift and a way to invest in your partner's cardiovascular health and longevity. 
And love mental it. health. Love I mean, it. all the good all things. All of the things. And, yes. and would have been really nice during this ice storm that we just had in yes. Texas to like warm up and feel that heat. <laughs> yes. Okay. Um, let's talk nutrients. So we want to focus on homocysteine lowering nutrients. And you already spoke to some of these, but we're talking riboflavin, folate, B6, B12, choline, kind of that whole B vitamin family. Yes. And so this is what drives that wheel and aids in that conversion from homocysteine into methionine, that SA to SAM conversion. And then B6 is very important to convert that homocysteine into cysteine. And so this is why in our cellular antioxidants, we have not only NAC and acetylcysteine and glutathione, but we also have that B6 there because that plays a role also in the conversion from the NAC into glutathione. So we think of B6 as an important cofactor or activator. Um, but to just nerd out a little bit deeper on folate, I think that this is kind of the most acknowledged nutrient when we talk about homocysteine values. We know that folate itself is an important B vitamin for DNA synthesis and the formation of new cells. And this is why, again, when we talk about prenatals, we really tie in the importance with neural tube defect and folic acid or folate deficiency. And so when we look at folate, that's a big piece of the puzzle, aiding with cellular formation, essentially. And we know also that the increase of folate can actually play a significant role, as I mentioned, some of the research studies in reducing homocysteine concentration. So as I mentioned before, when we think of folate, we think of foliage so leafy greens would be a big one and then you can kind of extend that into broccoli as well as uh, other green vegetables but spinach leafy greens kale those types of things would be go-tos the organ meats as we mentioned would be another big area of focus and there was actually a study that followed just under 2,000 Finnish men that over 10 years consumed the most dietary forms of folate in a natural form, right? Not synthetic folic acid, but dietary folate had 55% lower risk of an acute coronary event when compared to those that consumed less folate in their diet. Um, so big area of focus there. And then we've seen a meta-analysis of 25 controlled trials, almost 3,000 subjects that um, using folate uh, at 800 micrograms a day would achieve a maximal 25% reduction in plasma homocysteine levels. So a pretty significant reduction with use of folate. So the other more direct methyl donor we think of is methylcobalamin. So methylfolate, methylcobalamin, and methylcobalamin is going to be the bioactive form of B12. So we've seen individuals that have B12 deficiency to have higher levels of blood homocysteine. And as I mentioned, a lot of those trials, it's usually a combination of folate and B12 to have an influence in lowering homocysteine status. B12 is quite readily available um, in animal products. It's used to produce energy, make red blood cells, is really required for proper nerve function. So if we're talking about those neurological conditions and especially someone who has neuropathy as a symptom, tingling sensation in the hands or feet, they may need to, beyond bringing in our methyl complete also consider our uh, B12 boost, which is a sublingual under the tongue lozenge, which would be absorbed very rapidly into the capillaries. And that would be a great one to get B12 status optimized. Okay. And then let's talk choline a little bit. Yeah. So choline we think of as an important kind of cousin to the B vitamin family. And choline also plays a huge role in the fertility world. It's probably a less sung hero than folate, but I would argue equally important yeah. with baby's brain development. Um, it's a precursor to betaine, which is a compound that plays a role in the conversion of homocysteine safely into methionine. And choline supplementation is a favorable approach to a homocysteine lowering strategy beyond those direct methyl donors as more of a metabolizer. There's been a couple randomized clinical trials that have looked at supplementation with large doses of choline or betaine 
playing a role in decreasing plasma homocysteine levels. Um, beyond looking at this as a supplement tool, we think of betaine as, and choline as players when we're looking at egg yolk. Um, this would be a big area of food as medicine strategy here. And then optimizing the liver production of bile, we tend to also think as a favorable approach here. And so thinking of bitters, leafy greens, and egg yolk as being good food as medicine strategy. All right, how about riboflavin or B2? Okay, so this plays a role with the enzyme MTHFR. Um, riboflavin actually converts folate to the form that's required for the transformation of homocysteine into methionine. So it takes folate into methylfolate, basically. And um, riboflavin is key, especially in individuals that have that MTHFR, that C677T polymorphism, um, because these are individuals that often aren't getting that active conversion. Um, and so looking at B2 as a favorable tool here would be something we'd want to look at in supplement strategy as well as in the diet. And I tend to think uh, really heavily of like Greek yogurt as a good form for riboflavin. We're going to get all of these in liver. Yeah. <laughs> so as we kind of discussed, that is the nature's vitamin um, and really a folate powerhouse, I mean, excuse me, a, a methylation powerhouse when we're consuming liver. So we'll get a lot of that, of course, also in the B2. Um, but this would be where Greek yogurt, um, raw milk um, could be considered raw aged cheese. Yep. Um, and then B6, you mentioned this a little bit, you know, B6 is pretty much a cofactor for like everything. So yeah, many things. It's a big activator for sure. And so it does it is used in a couple clinical trials in conjunction with B12 and folate to have an influential role in lowering homocysteine. Um, but again, it plays a role also in converting that cysteine into the um, glutathione, um, which is an important place of getting more of that antioxidant building pathway. We know that B6 or pyridoxine is also going to play a role with our neurotransmitters, and this will play a role with actually production or activation. So if we're talking about, for instance, serotonin, B6 is required to take that 5-HTP, 5-hydroxytryptophan into serotonin. Um, and B6 is pretty widely available in foods, but there are many individuals that are still deficient, especially those that eat more of a standard American diet or a more processed food diet. And this is where they can see reduced neurotransmitter synthesis, issues with mood and neurological problems, and then of course, accumulation or buildup of homocysteine. Um, and then what else we got? NAC. So kind of discussed NAC in the sense that, again, that cysteine is a way to convert homocysteine out of the body and into an antioxidant. Um, and so NAC itself can actually also, which is the bioactive form of cysteine, the more antioxidant form, having NAC in a formula can actually play a role with displacing or um, competing with homocysteine from its protein carrier. And so having NAC as a supplementation strategy will actually lower homocysteine values. And then that, again, is going to rise your glutathione, that powerful antioxidant. There was a study in the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition that looked at a reduction of total plasma homocysteine in individuals that were supplementing with NAC. And um, they saw that 1.8 grams per day of NAC was assessed for four weeks. And they saw a 28% increase in plasma cysteine and 12% reduction in homocysteine values compared to the placebo group. Um, and so again, they saw more antioxidant building, less of that inflammatory, rigid driving homocysteine when supplementing with NAC. And that 1.8 grams is actually less than two capsules of our cellular antiox. So pretty impressive there as well with the NAC. Mm -hmm. um, and then um, other mineral cofactors, we think of zinc, we think of manganese, we think of molybdenum. Let's just tell listeners about our new formula that kind of covers all of these bases before we get like too nerdy and yeah. in the weeds. <laughs> yeah. So that's why we call it methyl complete. So it basically covers all of your bases. It has a hefty dosage of that L-methyl tetrahydrofolate. So you're getting 1.3 milligrams or 1,330 micrograms of that methylated form of folate. You're getting 25 milligrams of the active form of B6. 
and uh, methylcobalamin or B12 at 1,000 micrograms or one milligram. And um, this is getting us upwards of the highest rel relative percent daily value is going to be in that methylated B12, where you're at 41,000% of a daily need, um, followed by B6. And then uh, third lead in there would be that methylated folate. And then, yes, we included uh, zinc, manganese, molybdenum, uh, riboflavin, NAC, and betaine, HCL, as other components that will help to drive that methylation wheel. Yes, so super exciting to be able to bring this formula into fruition because we've been using some of these components with clients for years and years um, mm -hmm. since the old office and then some. Um, but we have our own formula now. Um, and we've also seen really remarkable results here um, with supporting neurotransmitter balance. I think we should talk about that for a sec. Yeah. So, you know, having this comprehensive support in Methyl Complete is not only a great way to actually measure and see influential change in your homocysteine status, which is clinically relevant and you will see, which is pretty cool to have that biomarker supplement connection. But also you might note that you'll have enhanced energy, in improved mood. Um, and in the neurotransmitter space, we know that when we support methylation, that that favorably supports production of serotonin, as I've alluded to a couple times now. But it also regulates some of our catecholamine or our stress-responding neurotransmitters. So when we're looking at our norepinephrine and epinephrine, um, we'll actually sometimes even bring in SAMe, which is a component of a methyl donor. But the first line of defense the, is that we want to support that methylation wheel and that production pathway. Basically, take out that buildup of that fight-or-flight mechanism and that can also help with cognitive clarity um, that can also help with mood stability more of an ability of I call it gear switching or kind of transitioning from a hyper focused mode to uh, an interruption <laughs> very important when I'm reviewing for instance full-time working mamas that also have a bunch of babies and are like getting in that irritable bitey mode of burnout um, we find that when we give them methyl complete that that really helps to kind of smooth things out and help them to feel a little bit less frazzled, a little bit less in that irritable, bitey, confused, distracted, brain-fogged space. That sounds good, doesn't it? Right. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds really good. Yes. Okay. A um, couple other just kind of supplement or dietary strategies real quick. Let's rapid fire yeah, these. So, um, so beyond known yeah. methyl donors, um, looking at omega-3s, I mean, I think that this is a great double dip for cardiovascular health in general. We talked about omega-3s and the importance in brain health as well a couple episodes back. Um, and so we've seen in many studies that when we consume fish oil or that EPA and DHA component in omega-3 fatty acids, that we can see a reduction of homocysteine levels. Um, and we've also seen that eating wild-caught fish can be a great modifiable risk factor reducing cardiovascular disease risk. Totally. And then um, magnesium, I think we hit on in the beginning of the episode. So magnesium can help to counter negative impacts of high homocysteine. And certainly we think about this in the world of high blood pressure, arrhythmia, you know, heart failure, all of the things. Yeah. And what's beautiful about our magnesium is that our magnesium in Relax and Regulate uses magnesium bisglycinate, right? So I made that connection of that methionine buildup from, you know, having too much muscle meat, getting glycine in the diet from skin and bone. So right, collagen peptides, bone broth, uh, getting those short ribs or bone and skin on cuts. So like making carnitas from pork shoulder, for instance, that's going to enhance your glycine, which will further support homocysteine reduction and using our relax and regulate as a magnesium supplement because it is magnesium bisglycinate is going to give you that donor beyond magnesium being a smooth muscle conductor, a regulator of cardiovascular rhythm and vessel function, you're also getting that donor of glycine. So I think kind of a cool two for one there as a function, especially when we're getting into the level of homocysteine regulation. Okay. 
Um, and, you know, I think bottom line, it's not just about like lowering your levels to lower your levels. We need to focus on vascular health as a whole. So all these other nutrients we just mentioned help to do that. Absolutely. You know, we think of the omega-3s, for instance, as being drivers of elasticity. So it's the oppositional effect of rigidity, sure. right? Um, we're also reducing inflammation when we're eating this anti-inflammatory, whole food, Mediterranean approach of consumption in the diet. Um, Um, And the high antioxidants reduces oxidative stress, which oxidative stress also drives aging, rapid age process, hardening, right? And we think of like oxidating, um, when I think of, again, that garden hose as an example of cardiovascular health and that concept of rigidity, rigidity, excuse me, and arterial injury, we want to keep things lubricated, anti-inflammatory, and elasticized. So... This is not all we have for you on heart health, actually. This is a pretty big deep dive today, all into homocysteine. We would recommend that you take advantage of our cardiometabolic panel, and um, maybe we'll give you guys a discount code um, to be able to save $20 on that panel. Um, We'll just call it February 20. Um, That should work fine, I think. I don't think we've used that code. Um, And that'll be on that cardiometabolic panel, which will assess your homocysteine. That does come with an email review from Becky or myself, and we would give you some supplement strategy. And then at minimum, go advocate from your healthcare practitioner to draw your homocysteine levels. And if you're at any value above eight, we feel very strongly that the methyl complete formula is a key element of strategy in disease prevention and risk factor prevention. So something to definitely check out. Uh, thank you always for listening to the Naturally Nourished podcast. Hopefully you've seen some aha moments in today's episode and can understand a little bit of this nuanced process of methylation and homocysteine and how it could impact your whole body health. As always, if you've learned something, go on over to iTunes or Google Play or Spotify, wherever you're listening to the Naturally Nourished podcast, go and give us a five-star review and a sentence or two about what you're loving learning from Becky and myself. Thank you for listening to the Naturally Nourished podcast. Visit our blog at AllieMillerRD.com for recipes, wellness tips, and food as medicine meal plans. Connect with Allie and Becky at AllieMillerRD on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Until next time, stay nourished and be well.